Welcome to episode 5 of the VMA's podcast, where we'll be discussing the Old Testament portion of this week's reading plan. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. So as we've been going through the reading, what has been encouraging to you? Yeah, this morning, uh, reading about Jacob and uh, the way in which God chose him and then began to shape him in his life. Amazed to see the story uh, of how Laban is behind him, chasing after him, and Esau is in front of him, the one that he had deceived before. Uh, he has the pressure of God above him who's working in his life, and all of this family that he now has, 11 children, two wives, two concubines, so that's a complicated and challenging lot, and just to see the pressures that are on him, and, uh, and yet God is working in his life, and just reminds me that the pressures that we feel in our lives, pressure I feel in my life, God is using that to shape me after his good purposes. Amen. Genesis chapter 24 tells us about how Abraham asked one of his servants not to find a wife for his son Isaac among the Canaanites, but to go back to the land of his kindred. There was so much faith in this chapter. Um, Abraham showed faith. The servant showed faith. Rebecca's brother and Laban and even Rebecca who agreed to go uh, with the servant back to meet Isaac. New Christians today generally have the mindset of putting God first as we enter into our marriages in the same way that Rebecca and Isaac did. I mean, just today, I do think most uh, Christian couples who are seeking to get married want to put God at the center of their relationship. Um, most of the young men and women that I've counseled are eager to, to read books and to think carefully and to see what Scripture says about yeah. those things. Very few have I found resistant to that if they are truly walking with Christ. Uh, so many believers as well go to marriage retreats and everything else, and there's always a, a place for you know, sermon series on, on marriage. So I think there is interest in those things. Yeah. Um, you know, question for us becomes: Is Genesis 24 first and foremost about marriage, or is it about something else? How does it fit into the storyline of of Genesis? No, what do you think? You know, I, I wonder. Well, I think it's broader for me because, um, just in general, when I look at um, the Bible. I, I can't really find instances where people dated okay, um, yeah. prior to marriage. They, mm-hmm. you know, even in this country, up until well, I've heard stories about <laughs> um, when people were coming home from World War One and World War Two. Mm-hmm. Um, people were basically getting married. I want—I don't want to say sight unseen, but very quickly yeah. they would meet someone, yeah. and within a few days they would yeah. get married. And fifty or sixty yeah. years later, they would yeah. still be married. Yeah. Uh, where today, uh, I wonder if. We Christians are unknowingly allowing the world to influence, the world culture to influence how we approach our marriages. Um, And so when I look at the Bible and uh, like Rebecca and Isaac, when Mm -hmm. it talked about, they saw each other from afar, basically. And then within a few phrases, they were married. (laughs) No, I think that's a, a worthwhile question and certainly just the way that culture shapes our expectations. Right? And so much of what Christian counseling and just an, a biblical understanding of marriage is, is to really kind of counteract what Hollywood and yeah. what Disney and what so many other um, you know, media industries have told us about marriage. And just the introduction of romance as the chief end of marriage is very different than what it would have been 75 years ago or right. certainly at the time of, of Rebecca and Abram, certainly any uh, agrarian culture. Or the Industrial Revolution, Information Age, 
to be very, very different. Yeah. Right. And so I don't know. The thing that stood out to me as I was reading Genesis 24, though, uh, had to do with the marriage between mm -hmm. uh, Rebecca and Isaac. But even more than that, um, what marriage symbolizes, right? We, we know that marriage symbolizes Christ in the church, right? Right. And so Paul calls that a mystery uh, in Ephesians 5. And that word mis mystery is uh, a transliteration of the word mysterion. Uh, so it's not a translation word. It's just taking the Greek letters and turning them to English letters. Right. Uh, and so there's nothing mysterious or mystical about marriage, although sometimes it feels like there is. Yeah. Uh, much more that there was something that was secretive and hidden that then became revealed, right? So there was something about God's purposes of marriage in the beginning that came to full um, light when Jesus Christ and the church came to reality. That's how Paul talks about it. So thinking about that and just reading Genesis 24 and wondering, why on earth is Genesis 24 the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, yeah. right? Because it's like, uh, this is just this, this long romance and this servant goes all the way up to Mesopotamia and back again. So I was just notating a number of different markers in the story. So you tell me what you think about this, right? Okay. So uh, the father prepares his beloved son a bride. So Abraham is making sure his son has the right um, wife. Uh, that's the whole point of Genesis 24. The father employs a trustworthy servant to bring a bride to the son. The servant finds a faithful bride in the midst of the nations, and Abraham instructs that servant to find a woman from his country and kindred who will share his same values and not a Canaanite woman. Right. The bride must follow the same course as Abraham. Abraham recalls God's call on his own life and that this woman must follow the same path from Mesopotamia into the promised land. The master funds the bridal mission. The Lord answers the prayer of the servant to find a bride. The Lord answers the servant's prayer, and Rebecca is brought to the servant. The answer to the prayer and the discovery of Rebecca leads to praise. The servant proclaims the word of Abraham before he eats, and the servant's food was to do his master's will. The servant proclaims the story of Abraham. That's the longest part in Genesis 24. The servant then gives a bridal price for Rebecca. Rebecca's father grants permission for her to go. And the language is very reminiscent of Pharaoh. We talked about this back in Genesis 12, to take her and go. And then, like Pharaoh, Laban then wants to hold her back, and the servant persists. No, she must go and go with me now. Rebecca comes to a decision. She follows the servant, and the servant leads the bride to the groom. I'm like... That's just the story of the gospel. Isn't it? Right? Yeah. I mean, is not the call on our lives to be following the bridegroom as the bride, and then as followers of Christ and part of the bride, are we not to be servants to go and call others to come and be a part of that yeah. as well? It's like, oh, maybe that's why Genesis yeah. 24 is the longest um, chapter in the book. That I don't know. What do you think amazing, about that? That's an amazing observation. Yeah. You know, to you know, I agree with you, and, and I, I'd be honest with you, I did not see that uh, so widely mm -hmm. uh, when I first read it. Uh, well, not when I first read it, when I read it this time. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, you know, that's that's one of the points of, of doing the reading and learning to read the Bible better is that you know uh, when we when we do it in fellowship, how God reveals things to us, and we're able to help each other grow. Yeah, and the knowledge of Christ is so wonderful. And, and even when you were speaking, I, I was still thinking about all the faith. Um, in the words that you just spoke, and yeah. all the people yeah. who lined up with God's will and plan That's right. you know, to, to achieve this marriage yeah. is just amazing. It is, and absolutely. That's kind of what led me to the question in the first place, is, is I just want to 
I was wondering if we Christians are more led by God when we are choosing a spouse mm -hmm. or by our emotions or our eyes. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, let's let's just say we all need to have our minds renewed by the word of God. Amen. And the gospel that we find in the word of God. Yeah. Right? And if Christ and the church is the purpose for the man and the wife, yes. then if we want to build a marriage that is in keeping with God's plan, the more we know the gospel, the more we think that way and live that out, the more equipped we will be for a marriage that honors God. That's why this is so special for us to be going through this reading plan in this way, mm -hmm. you know, uh, so we can help our children and even help ourselves to get a better understanding of God's plan and how we can live it out and not just marriage just in general as yeah. we're going through this reading right. and how we can bury the word in our heart yeah. and know how to respond yep. um, to situations in the world because all these things are going to come up that's right. you know in our lives so. that's right i got another question from genesis 25 it kind of relates to marriage but not in the same way um, genesis 25 verse 6 reads but to the sons of his concubines abraham gave gifts and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. So the question I have, if adultery was unlawful, why why did Abraham have concubines? Because uh, Abraham is a sinner. Yeah. <laughs> right? uh, I mean, Abraham is a man of faith whose righteousness comes from his faith, right. not from his works. Amen. Right? I mean, what we just saw in Genesis 24 is the fact that his faith led him to provide a, ultimately it's God who provided, but to look to um, provide for his, his son a, a faithful wife, right? And we see that in Rebecca. But we just see the inconsistency of Abraham here. In fact, we'll see this when we come to Jacob mm. and Leah and Rachel and their concubines or their servants as well. Yeah. And that the foundation of Israel is composed of four families. Right. Right? It's like, what do we think of that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, all throughout the law, we see all this instruction about living a pure and holy life. The people of Israel were to be called out of darkness and into light and to walk in holiness. But from the beginning, it was a mess. Yeah. And I just think, doesn't that give us hope, right? That wherever we find ourselves, right, whatever we have done, whatever sexual sin we have committed in the past, God is able to give grace to yeah. us and to walk in a new way of life. And even when we are inconsistent, when we live inconsistently with the gospel, uh, the gospel is still the gospel, yeah. right? And there is grace to forgive us. There is the Holy Spirit power to walk in a new way. So yeah, I just think it's one more evidence of Abraham, who is um, a man who needs Christ. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my son and I were talking, uh, and we were, th we were talking about why it's so difficult for Christians to uh, set aside things that we know are ungodly. Mm. I mean, even yeah. something as simple as a TV show that we watch. Yeah, uh, that's what we were talking about. Yeah. Uh, and he was saying that he was talking with some with some friends, and he was telling them about a show, and you know what would, you know what could possibly be wrong with it. Mm -hmm. And you know, he admitted that he likes the show too. Yep. But that he is starting to feel that maybe he shouldn't watch the show because of the nature of the show. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I I just find it interesting that we Christians, you know, all of us have things that we just do not that our flesh desires, even though our our, our heart may desire to follow after Christ. Yeah. I think Paul probably laid out laid that out really yeah. um, the best. Yeah, I mean Romans seven talks about that, right? Yeah. The things that I don't want to do, I do, and the things I want to do, I don't do. Yeah. Right? Who is going to you know 
redeem me from this life of, in the flesh. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so there's this internal warfare that is there. And praise be to God that he's given us his spirit to have a power and a desire to do those things. Part of that is cultivating that desire, mm-hmm. right? And so this is why reading the scriptures is so important because it gives us visions of grace and glory that motivate us to say no to those earthly pleasures and to say yes to the things of God. I think this conversation is an illustration of why we need Jesus. Because we just can't do it on our own. We can never measure up. And if it wasn't for um, Jesus Christ uh, being our intercessor um, Mm -hmm. for us, there's no way that we would be able... I think the law, obviously the law demonstrated that, that we on our own power, in our own power, cannot... Uh, live up to the law, and we need Christ. Yep. No, and, and this is why it's so good when we're reading the Old Testament, uh, not to just wait for Jesus at some point in the New Testament. Right. Right. We look at Abraham, we look at Isaac, we look at Jacob, and all of them needed the work of Christ as well. Yeah. Right. And so as we'll see reading through the Old Testament, these men and women of faith were looking through the promises and through the types and the shadows of the law to come uh, to this one who ultimately is found in Christ, yeah. right? So we have to see how all the Old Testament is making its way towards the gift of God's Son. Yep. So let's move on down. So Isaac and Rebecca are married and they have a, a couple sons. Mm-hmm. And let's uh, read Genesis 25, verses 29 through 34. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Jacob, well, let's, let's, step, let's take a step back. G- Jacob and Esau are two sons mm-hmm. of are the two sons of uh, Rebekah and Isaac. So as we read this, let's keep that in mind. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. When I take a look at this, I see uh, a bunch of problems, but I have two (laughs) questions. Sure. One is, why did Jacob request that Esau sell his birthright just for a bowl of stew? Yeah, so there is a big word, uh, prima genuture, how do you say it? I know how to write it. I'm not sure quite how to say it right now. but it's the idea that the firstborn uh, receives the blessing, receives the inheritance. Right? right. So the inheritance laws of the firstborn uh, in the law help us to understand this. That would have been common practice at that point in time. There's some differences in different cultures, but by and large, the firstborn receives the blessing. Right. Uh, that's actually one of the things that we see um, back in Genesis 25, that the sons of Abraham's concubines, he gives them gifts. Yeah. But the promise, the blessing that God made to Abraham is passed on to Isaac and then on to Jacob. Right. And so that came in the promise of when they were even in the womb. But now here uh, we see that that's what Jacob is seeking and he's seeking it in a crafty way. Yeah. Right. So, again, Jacob's name means deceiver. Right. He's grabbing the foot. Um, of his brother as he comes out of the womb. And we see the way that God chose Jacob, but the way that God chose him wasn't because of his righteousness. Right. Um, in fact, if you were to know Esau and to know Jacob, you probably would like Esau more than Jacob. Right. right? Jacob is this crafty, younger brother who's trying to do these things. And we see that here. 
Uh, and yet, God is going to work in Jacob's life. He's going to humble him incredibly and mold him and shape him into the man that he can bless because of his choice of him there. So that in the end, when he receives blessing, it's not because he worked for it or twisted others to get it, right. uh, but rather because God was gracious to make him um, acceptable in his sight, right? Uh, that's, that's what God does for all of us. We've heard about why Jacob asked Esau to sell his birthright. So my question now is, why would Esau sell something so valuable for a boast? Yeah, I mean, sadly, he treated it as, as nothing. Right. Right. Um, so, in fact, oftentimes when we come to those questions, we all just like, why? How do we understand this? That was good to cheat, right? Mm -hmm. And by cheat, I mean read the New Testament. Right. Yeah. And see if there's any place in the New Testament that talks about the Old Testament. And, in fact, in Hebrews 12, there is. Uh, so, Hebrews 12, uh, verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness which, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired the, to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he had no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Right. It seems as though the author here is bringing up Esau, may even be adding some interpretation that goes slightly behind or beyond the text of what we have in Genesis. But we see that he was unholy and he treated this incredible gift and this blessing as nothing. Right. Right. And so in some ways, it's almost like a living parable. It's a caricature that like, okay, he treated this glorious promise of blessing and life and God for a meal, yeah, right, and it's like whenever we trade the creator for creation and make creation something more valuable in our hearts than God, maybe that creation seems to be so great, and yet it's nothing but what Esau has done, mm. right, for a moment's pleasure, for a lifetime of savings, for whatever it is that we would have, nothing compared to the greater gift of God. I think we see that in Esau. Hebrews picks that up and helps us to apply that to ourselves. Amen. After the story of Isaac, you know, we just talked about the account of his two sons, Jacob and Esau. What can we learn about God from the stories of Jacob and Esau? Now, I sort of mentioned this before, um, but simply that God is going to be gracious to whom he is gracious. And in the womb, before Jacob or Esau had done anything, God chooses to bless Jacob. And then when we see him, it's like, okay, he's, again, a deceitful, crafty guy uh, who doesn't deserve blessing himself. But God is going to work in his life in such a way to bless him, right? And this is what he does in believers' lives. We see the way that God works in our lives to, to humble us and to teach us and to make us what he wants, right? So uh, in Romans, it talks about the fact that from predestination, to calling, to justification, to glorification. It's all one work of God yeah. and that he is planning for the end from the beginning. Uh, and that's true for all creation. It's true for every individual. Yeah. And we see that on display in the life of, of Jacob. After Jacob flees from his father's house, he goes to Laban, the brother of his mother. And on the way there and on the way back, he's confronted by the angel of the Lord. We have seen the angel of the Lord often in Genesis. Is this 
pattern of divine encounters, something Christians should seek today? What can we learn from these encounters? Yeah, so certainly there's a temptation, or certainly there's a right desire to have an experience with God. Right. right? So you read this, say, okay, I want to have that experience. I think it's helpful to see where it is uh, that Jacob has these encounters. Um, to Jacob encounters the angel here uh, on the way out of Canaan and on the way back into Canaan. Right? So that's, that's striking. Yeah. Because... There's a boundary between this promised land that God has given to Abraham and the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And so when um, Jacob leaves that place, he's leaving the place that God's people are going to have. And when he comes back in, then he's again confronted with God. When he's first there in Genesis 28, um, he doesn't recognize him as his God. Right. Right? He didn't know that the presence of God was there until he has this dream. And he sets up a pillar striking is that when he comes back in Genesis 32, um, he wrestles with the angel, his name is changed, mm -hmm. and he then builds an altar. He worships, right? If I were to place a moment of salvation in Jacob's life, I would say it was in Genesis 32. Genesis 31, as he's going back and forth with Laban, uh, he's always talking about his father's God, his father's God really interesting because Genesis 31, it's like Laban and Jacob are two unbelievers talking about a God they've heard of, but they don't know. Then in Genesis 32, you see that Jacob comes to know the God of his fathers. Yeah. Right? And in that moment, he worships. His name is changed. He now walks with a limp and the blessings are passed on to him in that moment. But to the point, that's at Bethel. Uh, it's at the place where he came back in. And this is striking because, can you think of another time when the people of Israel, the sons of Jacob, are going to come into the land and encounter um, the angel of the Lord? No, I know this. <laughs> it's Joshua, right? Oh, yeah. Right? Joshua, where the, yeah, yeah. The, arm, right. the Lord of the army of hosts is there. And he asks, who are you for? Are you for us or for our enemies? That's right. right. And he falls down and worships him there. Or I should say, he worships God there. And what's striking is that as the people of Israel who are in the wilderness, come back into the land, right. they confront again an angelic being, which is striking because what happened when God took the people made in his image out of the Garden of Eden? He put an angel at the door of mm. Eden to guard the people there. Right. Yeah. So I think what Moses is doing and then what the author of Joshua is doing is teaching us that the land that the people are promised, that Abraham has promised, as they go in and out, the angelic being who is there is in so many ways teaching us this is the promised land, this is the new Eden, this is the place that God will dwell with his people, his people will dwell with God. Yeah. And those boundary markers and those locations are important for us to help make sense of those things. Well, it also be helpful to note, so the question, one of the part of the question that we just asked is, um, you know, so Christians be seeking these encounters today. You know, when I read that, uh, I was thinking, well, the Christians back then, or the, or the followers of God back yeah. then, did not have the Holy Spirit. Um, so we also, now we have the mm -hmm. Holy Spirit to help God. So we have God with us yeah. all the time. We, yeah. we have a, 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 our experience with God is through the Holy Spirit. Yep. So would it even be necessary for uh, us today to have these encounters? Yeah, so um, I think it's important to see that the encounter that Jacob had, the encounter that Israel had at Sinai, is your encounter. 
Right. Right. These things were given to the people of Israel for the generations that are to come. Right. That's true. Right. And so we have the word of God given to us a testimony of these things. And so when the mountain shakes at Sinai, by the Spirit of God working within us, we should tremble right. at the God who is there. Right. And if we do, it is because the Spirit is at work. So I certainly believe the Holy Spirit is present and at work in the Old Testament. Um, any, so even uh, Jacob would be an example of someone who I would say was a regenerate, yeah. uh, that he was dead in Adam um, because of, you know, of his sin. But then he's now made alive, this regeneration that is there. Caleb will be described as someone who has a different spirit because of that as well. But what is different uh, is I'd say that the spirit doesn't dwell with believers uh, the way that he did in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, he dwelt in a tabernacle. Right here. Right? Uh, eventually. Uh, with us, he now dwells with us because the church, the people of God, are the tabernacle, yeah. uh, yeah. the holy temple. So there is a distinction that is there, but it's important to remember that the Holy Spirit is at work there. And what is the Holy Spirit given to us? He's given to us 66 books of the Bible. Yeah. Uh, that that is how we encounter the Lord today. So believers who want to encounter Christ and encounter God, Open up the Word of God. Read it. These are His words to you. Definitely. So the last question is, is there anything in the story of Jacob and Laban that we might miss because we are 21st century Christians, not ancient Near Eastern nomads? Yeah, there are lots of things I think that are, are challenging. Uh, certainly want to transport ourselves back in time to understand what is going on at that place. Right. Maybe one example of this is when um, Jacob flees from Laban and he takes his, his two wives with them, uh, so Leah and Rachel. And Rachel is found um, with the household gods. And so these would have been gods that, that Laban had. And she takes them. Uh, and what's striking about this is the fact uh, that she is sitting on top of them as Laban rummages through uh, all their stuff, looking for them, accusing Jacob of stealing them. Mm -hmm. Um, and she says that the way of the woman is upon her, right? So it's uh, her menstrual period is at that point. Uh, and what the author does is to have her as she's sitting on the household gods. Like, one, how impotent are these gods? Right, yeah. Right? That he might be worshiping all the rest, but they're able to be hidden by someone sitting on them. Mm -hmm. And secondarily, the uncleanness. Uh, that is there, yeah. right? How unclean those gods are. That's just one of the things that we'll see as we get into uh, to the law. And so it's just one of those ways that Moses is just kind of dropping some different clues. And you know, the more that we're attentive to the law and attentive to just some of the customs at the time, it helps us to understand some of these things and to remind ourselves there's nothing that is accidental uh, in uh, the writings here. Even when Laban and Jacob make a, a covenant together in Genesis 31. Um, Laban, excuse me, Jacob sets up one pillar, right? And Laban sets up uh, a heap of stones, right? Could it be that there's just a, a distinction between the way that Laban worshipped many gods and Jacob was going to worship the one god with one pillar? I don't know. There are just mm -hmm. ways in which the cultural customs of the day are important for us to understand in order to see what Moses is saying to us. So, do we make gods of things today? All the time? Yeah. All the time. I think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's why we need God's Word, uh, why we need to be reminded that the, the law is given to us not to make us feel good about our righteousness, to expose our sin, 
lead us to Christ and uh, as you observed in Genesis 24, to walk by faith and not yeah. by sight. Well, this concludes our discussion of the Old Testament portion of our reading plan. As you do your daily readings, if you come up with questions that you would like to ask David, please send it to beamazed at obc.org. You may hear your responses in an upcoming episode. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.